one do I have to stop? 1045. Okay. You've probably noticed after meditating, when you try to take your meditation out into society, one of the problems is the culture around you. American culture seems to be designed to destroy meditation. Any sense of peace or calm or lack of greed, lack of anger, lack of delusion that you might have picked up while you meditate tends to get destroyed when you walk down the street and just look at the signs, pick up values from the people. And we often think that if only we could be in Asia, where it's easier to meditate, where the culture is more supportive, life would be a lot easier for us. That's partially true in the sense that there is a structure in Asia, many of the Asian Buddhist countries, a structure for people who want to meditate, a structure that <coughs> encourages the practice. But it's not, it's not the case that the society at large is necessarily good for meditation any more than it is over here. Especially now that globalization has hit Thailand and other, other Asian countries, which is based on the proposition that peace and harmony come through unbridled greed. Everybody allow, is allowed to be as greedy as they want and somehow the, the invisible hand of the market will make sure that everybody lives in peace. But even traditionally in Thailand, I noticed when I first went over there, I first went as a uh, teacher taught for two years in a university. And then at the end of those two years, I came in touch with the Thai forest tradition. And it was like a different culture from what I'd seen. Um, the people, the values, the attitudes were very, very different. And as I got to know the, the forest tradition a lot better, I began to see that it really was like a countercultural force over there, that it, its values went against some of the larger values of society. <coughs> This fact goes way back. The Buddha himself ran against this when he, after his awakening, he went home <coughs> to visit his family. And the very first day, he went out for alms, as he'd been doing for the past six years. And his father, the king, saw this and came running out and said, what are you doing running around in those brown robes asking for alms? This is a disgrace to our family. And the Buddha says, I no longer belong to your family. I belong to the family of the noble ones. And this is one of our customs. Uh, John Munn, who was the founder of the Thai forest tradition, ran up against similar problems. He went out in the forest and was following what were called the Tudanga, or in Thai they call Tudong practices, which include eating out of your bowl, living in the forest, eating only one meal a day, having only one set of three robes. And people would accuse him of, no long, of breaking with Thai custom, breaking with Laotian custom. That people hadn't been doing this for a long time and they didn't see any reason why somebody should be smart-alecky enough to try to start up these old traditions again. And he said, I'm not concerned about Thai customs or Laotian customs, because those are the customs of people with defilement. So I'm concerned about the customs of the noble ones. And again, he used the same word, Aryawong, which also means the traditions or the lineage of the noble ones. And so since we're sort of a countercultural force here in America as meditators, I think it's useful to be clear on what those customs are. If you're going to have, an, have a practice which goes against the customs of the local society, it's good to be clear on precisely where the customs of a meditative life differ from the customs of life outside. So you can protect yourself from unhealthy influences. The customs of the noble ones are, are four. And the first three deal with contentment. Um, contentment with whatever food you get, contentment with whatever clothing you have, 
contentment with whatever shelter you have. And we'll go over these more in detail in a minute. And if you know about the, the Buddha's teachings on the four requisites, you would think that the fourth custom would have to do with medicine, but it doesn't. Instead, it deals with delighting in developing skillful mental qualities and delighting in abandoning unskillful ones. That's the fourth custom, and it's probably the most interesting. But we'll go over all four. Uh, first three in, ter in terms of contentment. Um, the monks have a chant that we do every day, and when we talk about why we're using food, why we're using clothing, why we're using shelter. And it's to remind us, you know, clothing is, serves a purpose specifically for covering the body, to protect it from heat, to protect it from cold. Uh, food serves the purpose of keeping you alive and relatively healthy, overcoming feelings of hunger, and, but not eating to the point where you stuff yourself so that you're so stuffed, this, the being stuffed itself becomes painful. Um, the third one is contentment with shelter. You would use your shelter again for protection from cold, protection from heat, protection from insects and all the other inclemencies of the weather. Now the Buddha says that as a custom of the noble ones, you not only practice contentment with these things, um, when you get something that's good, you learn to use it properly. If you don't get anything that you, that's, that's up to your desires, you learn to be content with what you've got. And then finally, that you don't exalt yourself or disparage others because you are frugal or you're content with a few things. In other words, you don't look down on people who have more or use more. Or don't raise yourself and say, I'm a better person because you know, I don't drive such a wasteful car or I don't drive such a, or live in such a ostentatious house. Because the purpose of these things is not to make you better than other people, but it's to cut back on your own defilement. And um, that's an important point to keep, in, to keep in mind. And it's learning to value this quality of contentment as something that's very important. Recently, the Thai government was worried about what was happening to the economy. And so an official directive went out to monks, don't talk about contentment as a, as a teaching. <laughs> it's going to be bad for the economy. <laughs> and if you remind yourself continually about the value of contentment and how important it is, that you, make your, you, know, you leave a, a smaller footprint when you go, and you're not as, as, as much of a weight on the world, it makes it easier to go down to the shopping mall and get only what you need and to come back without buyer's remorse from having picked up too much. You realize, okay, I don't need that, I don't need this, I don't need that. Um, learn to resist the messages that tell you that you do need these things that you never even heard of before. You've been able to live all this time without all this stuff. You can certainly survive much longer without it. Contentment, however, does not mean that you don't look after what you got. In fact, it means that you do. There's lots of rules for the monks, in particular about taking care of your robes. You know, when the robe gets torn, don't throw it out and get a new one. You learn how to patch it. And there's lots of instructions on how to patch your robes, how to look after your, um, your dwellings as well. There's a famous story in Thailand of a monk who was staying with a John Cha during the rain scene. <coughs> and at one point, a storm came through and blew off half the roof of his hut. And so a few days later, John Cha was walking around the monastery and he saw the monk staying in his hut with half a roof and asked him, what are you doing? Why aren't you fixing your roof? And the monk said, well, I'm practicing equanimity. I'm practicing contentment. And the John Cha said, well, that's the equanimity of a water buffalo. Go fix your roof. You know? <laughs> um, I remember I got into trouble one time. John Fuang saw me using something and I almost broke it. And he said, hey, be more careful with these things around here. I said, well, if it breaks, we can always get a new one, right? I had a 15-minute lecture. 
<laughs> on taking care of your things. That's an important part of contentment. You know, the longer you take care of this, you know, the longer you have to, you won't have to worry about buying a new one to replace it. So an important part of contentment is also looking after what you've got, keeping it in good, good repair. Um, the fourth quality, delighting in abandoning unskillful qualities and delighting in developing skillful ones. This really goes against the grain. We tend to delight in indulging in our greed, to indulge in our anger, and indulge in our delusion. As for the idea of building up healthy qualities, wholesome qualities in the mind, the mind tends to resist. And the important thing here is to learn to view this process of meditation as a skill in which you're attaining more and more proficiency. And that way it makes it fun to do these things. If you can think of the idea of abandoning unskillful qualities captures your imagination, you can make a game out of it. You can see times when you would ordinarily give rise to greed and figure out ways not to give in to the greed. And it becomes more and more of a skill that you master. And with the mastery of this skill, there comes a real pleasure. I was talking yesterday about how people tend to approach meditation in one of two extreme ways. One is to view meditation through the power that if you, can, if you have affirmations, if you can affirm things, you will get what you want. It's just simply through the act of will that this will change reality for you. Because as, you know, it's true that when reality and your desires mesh, that's really you know, true happiness right there. There's a fit between the two. Now, what, as I say, one approach is to, I call it the Barney the Dinosaur approach. If you wish hard enough, it'll come true. If you can imagine yourself in such a you know, winning, winning the game, you will win the game. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, the opposite is the idea that we have to abandon our desires entirely. That you know, The process of meditation is to totally undercut desire. And many times this is associated with the conditioning that we've picked up from society. If we can undo our conditioning and get back to our pure nature so that instead of doing, we can just simply be, then there will be true happiness. The Buddha never taught this way. He taught more down the middle, which is there are some areas of reality that you can manipulate and some that you can't. And skill lies in discovering which areas you can manipulate for, for good purposes and which ones you can't. That comes with time. It takes, requires that you look at a situation, give it, experiment with some approach to see what will work. And if it doesn't work, you learn from your mistake. If it does work, then you've learned something positive as well. And over time, you build up skills in how you approach things. In particular, the Buddhist skill is that by developing skillful qualities in the mind, eventually you open up to a happiness which is beyond conditioning. Now, the skillful qualities he points to are things like mindfulness, alertness. Um, I'll go down the list in, in a minute, but just mindfulness and alertness. You look at them, you know, what are they? Mindfulness is the ability to keep something in mind, which is pretty basic. Alertness is the ability to notice what's going on around you. Again, these are extremely basic qualities. And if you simply look at them as they are in an undeveloped state, there doesn't seem to be much potential for what they can do for the mind. But the Buddha said if you develop these things to a, a heightened degree, they can take you places where you wouldn't ordinarily imagine. It's like little, little sprouts on a, on a path. I mean, some of the little sprouts on the path are just weeds, and some of them are actually redwood trees. And if you, you know, leave space for the redwood tree, it'll actually have a chance to grow. And so this is what we're doing and as we sort out between skillful and unskillful qualities in the mind. Examples of unskillful qualities would be the hindrances, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety and uncertainty. 
And most of the, our problems is when these things come up in the mind is we tend to give, give in to them. We give in to our desires. Again, society encourages that. If you don't give in to your desires, you're going to get tied up in all sorts of knots through repression. Well, again, it's, that's a false issue, that either indulgence... We have more choices than indulgence and repression. Okay? There's a middle ground between the two. Where you can see a desire and decide whether it's a worthwhile desire or not, and if it's not, learn to deal with it in such a way that it doesn't overcome your mind. And if you learned how to see that as a sport, then it becomes fun. Instead of, saying the, instead of identifying with the desire, you begin to say, okay, this is a potential problem here in the mind. What are the possible ways of undermining it so it doesn't take over? And as you try some of the various methods that, that are recommended in terms of looking at the unattractive side of the object that you're feeling desire for, or thinking about what it's going to be down the line if you give in to the desire, or what you're going to have to do in order to get what you desire. Many times you, when you think about what you have to do in order to attain certain desires, you realize it's not worth it. And if you can learn to think in these ways, then you're not repressing the desire so much as you are dealing with it in an intelligent way. And as you do this more and more with practice, you begin to get a sense of almost what technical proficiency. You see the desire come up. I say, I know you. I can, I can deal with you. Rather than feeling that you're compelled to give in to the desire. This way you can delight in overcoming these things. There's a passage in a John Lee's autobiography where he talks about when he was a young monk. And it's a group of young monks staying together out in the forest. And they began to have an unspoken competition as to who could eat the least food. <laughs> and of course, you know, there's the, the competition, the competitive nature there was not you know, necessarily a skillful thought or a skillful mental quality. But at least it's more skillful than competing and to see who can eat the most. You know. You're going to take your competitive desire, okay, channel it in a proper way. And then, okay, once you've learned how to get by on just a little, then you can start dealing with the competitive side. I very rarely see anybody in America having that kind of competition. The <laughs> <laughs> same goes for ill will. You realize that, okay, by wishing ill on other people, no matter how unskillful they may be or however harmful they may be, wishing ill on them doesn't do anything at all. It doesn't help you. And if you spend all your time simply wishing ill on them, it, it gets in the way of your actually looking at the harm they're doing and learning how to stop that kind of harm. If you can simply think about how much you hate that particular political figure. <laughs> that doesn't do anything for him. If you can think about well, what are ways that we can stop his un unskillful actions, that's, that's a much more effective way of dealing with it. Just as an aside, a few days ago we were doing uh, practice of uh, spreading goodwill. And we got to the issue of spreading goodwill to people that you don't like. And afterwards, someone commented and that said, well, my, my sort of, the person I usually choose when I think about that category of people I don't like is the President of the United States. And I don't want him to think that I'm spreading goodwill because I like him. <laughs> and I said, don't worry, he won't know. <laughs> Sloth and torpor. This is another one where we tend to give in. As soon as there's any sign of sleepiness, you're sitting there meditating and you start getting drowsy and say, oh, that's a sign I've got to stop. And you just give right in. And it's, it, try to make it a sport to see, well, what can you do not to give in to the sloth and torpor? Because many times it's not actually that the body needs a rest, it's more that the mind is bored and it's looking for some excuse to stop. And so it can create the symptoms of being sleepy. So do what you can to counteract them. Some of the methods are to, if you've ever um, memorized any, 
any chant or any poetry or something, try to call what you've memorized back to mind. If that doesn't work, you can change the object of your meditation. If you're focusing on a really refined breath sensation, you can change it to a heavier one. Or you can change to another topic of meditation. There are plenty of topics you can think about. You can get up and walk around. John Cha had a method of walking backwards. He said that would usually wake you up for fear of running into something. And I mentioned yesterday that some people sometimes will recommend sitting on a cliff face or something. It's a sharp drop-off when you're sleeping. And I would not recommend that one, personally. <laughs> the consequences are too dire <laughs> if you do actually fall asleep. Because sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're feeling slothful and drowsy, you, you, know, you really do need to sleep. The Buddha said after, in his recommendations for overcoming drowsiness, that if you see that you try these various methods to wake yourself up, and if you can't wake yourself up, it's a sign the body really needs some rest. So, go lie down. But he says, but as you lie down, have the thought in your mind that as soon as you wake up, you're going to get up. So that you don't just wake up and turn over and go back to sleep again. You're not giving in to the drowsiness. And again, if you can see this as a skill that you can develop, as something that's fun to have in your repertoire of skills. You find it's useful not only to keep yourself awake during the meditation, but at other times when you really need to be awake, when you're driving down the road, you need to be awake. You have this ability to draw on. And this way you can learn how to undercut these unskillful qualities. Similar teachings for overcoming restlessness and anxiety. If you really, have, if you really are anxious about something, and you really feel that it needs to be thought about, if it's in the course of your meditation, tell yourself, okay, at the end of the meditation, we'll think about this, okay? The meditation can be seen as a process of sharpening your mental knives. And if you're going to hack away at something, you don't want to hack away with a dull knife. If there's an issue that has to be thought about, give yourself ten minutes at the end of the meditation. And say, until that time, I'm not going to think about this. And every time the thought comes up, you just stop. Cut it, cut it, cut it. Then, because you, you know that... Okay, if it really is an important issue, you will have time to think about it, and at the end of the meditation, your mind will be in better shape. It's like the difference between taking a sharp knife to, a, to cut something and a dull knife. If you just keep whacking away with a dull knife, you waste your strength. If the knife is sharp, just one cut, chop, and you're right through. So again, this ability to step back from a particular hindrance and not give in to the eye, whatever it's going to say, that you know, I really need to follow this particular attitude of mind or really need to indulge in this particular attitude of mind. You find that you do have the ability to step back and overcome it, and that becomes something that you can learn to delight in as you get more and more skillful at this, more and more proficient. The same with uncertainty. When you start wondering about yourself, can I really do this? There are ways to think about it. There's a reflection they call reflection on the Sangha, or recollection of the Sangha. And you think about all the people in the past who were in worse off situations than you are, who were able to attain, attain awakening. Remind yourself, they could do it, why can't I? They were human beings, I'm a human being. If you have doubts about the practice, you can reflect on the Buddha, the kind of person that the Buddha was. You know, what kind of, he had already attained awakening, he didn't need anybody's praise, he didn't need anybody's money, he just went out and taught for 45 years, walking around all over northern India, teaching anybody who needed to be taught. That's not the kind of person who's going to be sitting around thinking, well, what do people want to hear this year? Or what's going to sell this year? I mean, he taught what needed to be taught, what would, what would be helpful. And that's the tradition that we're, that we're practicing in. 
Ultimately, if you really get uncertain about things and nothing seems solid at all, just look at your breath. Okay, when the breath is going in, you know it's going in. When it goes out, you know it's going out, right? Okay, just stay right there. Stay with something you really know that you're really certain about. And then, then you can build on that. And that way you get... A lot of the problem with uncertainty is that we ourselves are untrue. We do a little bit of meditation, say, well, I don't know if that's going to work, so you pull back. Try this a little bit, I don't know if that's going to work either. Well, give yourself to, to something. Give yourself to the breath. After all, it's the force that keeps you alive. If nothing else in life is, is going to matter to you, at least your breath should matter to you, whether it's coming in right, whether it's going out right. As someone said, one, one thing you can do in meditation is to count your breaths. Count your in-breaths, count your out-breaths, and at the end of the meditation, make sure they're equal. <laughs> <laughs> But the point is that you give yourself something solid that you can really focus on. If nothing else is important in your life, your breath should be important. And it only stands to reason that because this is the essential force in your life, if the breath comes in comfortably, it's going to be a lot healthier for you than if it doesn't come in comfortably. So you can work with that. So basically what this is, is looking at these hindrances and not indulging in them. So much of the time when a hindrance comes, it comes with a lot of other arguments that not only is there this desire, but you, for some reason you should indulge in the desire. If you feel ill will, you, all, you should focus on what's wrong with that person that you're feeling ill will for, to justify that particular state of mind. And on down with all five, all five of the hindrances. <clears throat> and if you can learn not to give in to those voices, you begin to realize it's not so much the culture outside that's the problem, it's the culture that you've, you've internalized in here. And if you can start carrying these customs of the noble ones around and these attitudes of the noble ones that it, you can learn how to delight in overcoming these hindrances. Then you find that you really do have a handle on them and that with, with practice and over time you find that you develop a skill. The same with developing skillful qualities. When you can develop qualities like mindfulness, qualities like your ability to see what in the mind is skillful and what in the mind is unskillful. The Buddha once said that he got on the path correct path to practice when he simply sat back and decided to divide his thinking into two types, skillful and unskillful, based on what the thoughts would lead to. All too often when a thought comes into the mind, we just simply ride with it. It's like a car that comes up and says, hey, you want to go? And we jump in and we don't ask where they're going. Now, if you lived your life like that, you don't know where you'd end up. And so, so why do you let your mind run this way? When a thought comes up, ask it, where are you going? And many times you can, you can tell, you know where it's going. Because many of these thoughts are movies you know, that you've been running many, many, many times in your mind. And you say, I know where this goes. I, do I want to go there? Not really. Okay, just let it go. As for skillful thoughts, sometimes you see that a particular line of thought will take you someplace you want to go. Okay, it's okay to go there. So what the Buddha did was he stepped back and instead of getting into the world of each thought, was just watching, where do these thoughts go? And then he saw certain you know, thoughts that were not based on greed, anger, and delusion would go to good directions. Thoughts that had elements of greed, anger, and delusion in their motivation would take him where he didn't want to go. So he would check the second variety and he would allow the first variety until he realized that even, even when you think about skillful things for a whole day, that gets you tired. So from there he decided to bring the mind to stillness. This is an important pattern in the meditation. Many times we think, just sit down and stop your thinking no matter what it is and then you can get the mind to stillness. It doesn't usually work that way. First you have to learn how to think in skillful ways before you can stop the mind. Skillful thoughts are ones that are easier to 
untie or easier to get out of, basically, when the time comes to settle down. Unskillful thoughts tend to be really sticky. It's like trying to let go of something and yet it really clings to you because there's the anger and then you feel bad about your anger. Or if there's been lust and you feel embarrassed about your lust or whatever, it's difficult to shake these things off. But if you first can learn how to undercut your unskillful thoughts by counteracting them with skillful ways of thinking, then it's a lot easier to get the mind to settle down. And so as the Buddha said, this is, this is called analysis of qualities, seeing the qualities that are in your mind and learning how to step back from them so that you don't associate with them. From there you learn how to develop the skillful ones and undercut the unskillful ones. And as he says, when you do this, it gives rise to a sense of rapture as the mind begins to settle down and you feel more and more at home in the body and less harassed by your unskillful thoughts. There's a sense of ease, there's a sense of refreshment that comes. Because not only are the unskillful thoughts not running through your mind, but then also all the unskillful things they tend to leave in their wake are not running through your mind as well. At this point, the body then can attain other skillful, the mind and body can experience peace, maybe concentration, and finally you can bring the mind to equanimity. Now, equanimity doesn't mean indifference, but it means having a clear sense of priorities, what's important, what's not important, what's possible and what's not possible. And this is something that you develop, uh, you get a sense of this over time as you begin to realize okay, there's something painful going on in your experience. Exactly how much of that pain are you responsible for right now? You've learned through experimentation. You can change the way you breathe, you can change the way you approach that particular thought and that particular sensation, and you can see what difference you make. Some things you can change, some things you can't. Focus on what you can change. As for the things you can't change, just chalk that up to past karma. And when you have this attitude, this is what proper equanimity is all about. It's not indifference, it's simply seeing okay, what you can work with and what you can't. If there's something you can't work with, you leave it alone for the time being. And this way you learn to live these qualities in your life so they're not so much abstractions, but they become skills that you've mastered. When you can take this attitude towards your practice, that it's a, it's a body of skills that you're going to work on, and as you develop them bit by bit by bit, you begin to get a sense of enjoyment out of it. The fact that you can overcome anger. Maybe you did it once. That doesn't mean you're going to do it all the time, but you at least have something back in your, in your personal history. You know that I can overcome things that have normally in the past overcome me. And this is what it means to take delight in developing skillful qualities and take delight in abandoning unskillful qualities. If you can think of it as a sport, think of it as something you do for your entertainment, and it can be. You can see a thought come up and you realize, I used to give in to that thing, but now I don't have to. I can do this, I can do that. There's a sense of real well-being and mastery that comes with that. And that's the kind of delight that the Buddha is talking about, that you are more in control of your mind. You're not so much a passive victim of outside forces or of, outside, or of inside forces. And this way, when you can internalize these attitudes, so that when you go down to the store and you can delight in not buying, or you can see an angry headline and delight in not getting angry along with it, instead of saying, okay, what's, what's the skillful thing to do here? That's when you're beginning to embody what they call the customs of the noble ones. And that way, when you have that set of attitudes and you're very clear about them, then when you see what's coming in from the outside, you can be very clear about, okay, what, you want, what influences you want to let in the door and what influences you don't want to let into the door. And that way you can create a space where your meditation can, can thrive.
in your practice. So those are some of my thoughts on the matter. We've got 15 minutes. Are there any questions? Yes. I have a question about uh, the practice and, and, and having thoughts, unwholesome thoughts, or mm-hmm. runaway thoughts. Um, in other traditions, there's also the thing of just being with a thought, mm-hmm. and just being with that, mm-hmm. being aware of it, and then letting it go, mm-hmm. another unwholesome or whatever it is thought comes. Mm-hmm. Just being with that, well, that's, that's one approach, um, just watching things come and go. The Buddha said there are basically two approaches to dealing with unskillful things in the mind. One is the passive one, where you just watch. And the other is the more active one, where you actually actively counteract it. And he says, sometimes the passive approach works, and sometimes the active approach works. Now, he doesn't tell you when. <laughs> but that's for you to discover. In your practice, because if you if you have only one tool in your meditation box, it's like having only a hammer and you're trying to build a house. You know, you, a board needs to be sawed, and you take a hammer. You know, a chisel needs to be you know, something needs to be chiseled, and you take a hammer. It's not it's not that effective. So it's good as a meditator to have a whole arrange, whole ray. Um, with distracting thoughts, he said the first thing to do is if there's some if an, unha- an unwholesome or an unskillful thought comes up, counteract it with a more skillful one. First approach. Like if you see, if you see anger coming up, we often hear that that goodwill or loving kindness is the is the antidote to anger. It's not always the case, because it's really hard to stir up goodwill a lot of times, right in the thick of things when someone is doing something really bad or really evil. Um, actually, the Buddha more often recommended having a sense of equanimity and reflecting on the lo- the rule of karma. Okay, that. Okay, these people are going to reap the results of their actions. I'm going to reap the results of my actions. What's the appropriate thing to do right now? Another way that he has you deal with anger is to remind yourself that if you really give in to your anger, you often do precisely the thing that your enemy would like to see happen to you. You Many times you end up destroying friendships. You end up destroying your peace of mind. You don't look good when you're angry. (laughs) Um, You can end up destroying some of your property. You do things that are ultimately for your own worst interest under the force of anger. And so the, the Buddha actually has to re- reflect on that first. Okay, then you begin to realize, okay, I better not give in to this anger. Then you can start thinking thoughts of goodwill. And again, the goodwill has to start here. So this is an example of taking a, a skillful thought to counteract an unskillful one. Now sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't work, then he says the next one is to actually think about the drawbacks of the anger or the drawbacks of the lust, or the drawbacks of the fear. So you see that I really don't want to go there. Third one is to just ignore it. Now, ignoring doesn't mean you pretend it's not there. You know it's there, but you don't focus your attention on it. You've probably seen this sometimes in your meditation. There's just a lot of chatter that goes on in your mind. And if you get involved in the chatter, it's like the old story of the monkey and the tar trap. The monkey goes up and he sees a blob of tar. He touches it with his hand hand gets stuck. So he tries to pull it away with the other hand, the other hand gets stuck. Puts his feet to push them, push them away, the feet get stuck. Bites it because he's angry. <laughs> <laughs> so some of your thoughts are like that, in which case you don't want to pay any attention to them at all. <laughs> you say, okay, if they want to chatter, they can chatter in the background. I'm going to stay with my meditation object here. And after a while, it's it's like a crazy person coming to talk to you. Have you ever had a crazy person come up and talk to you? If you pay attention to them, what happens? 
they've got you for two hours. <laughs> but if you pretend that you know they're not there, and they'll start saying even crazier and crazier things to get your attention. But if you're insistent enough not to pay any attention, after a while they go away. A fourth approach is to um, notice that when there's an unskillful thought in the mind, there's also a pattern of tension in the body, and it's easier not to think the thought than it is to think. So find that pattern of tension in the body and allow that to relax. And then the fifth one, they say, is kind of, if we compare all these to different tools in your toolbox, the fifth one is a sledgehammer. Just grit your teeth, press your tongue against the roof of your mouth and say, I will not think that thought. And that's just battering it out. And it's, it's not the most skillful way in it. But at least as long as, you're, you know, as long as your willpower holds up, you can get that thought out of your mind. So these are five different active ways of, of counteracting unskillful thoughts. But there also as is the time when all you have to do is just watch the thought. It comes and it goes and that's it. But it's, it's important that you have all these tools in your kit. And, and to realize that different tools will work for different, different situations. Yes. You talked uh, about defilement. Does that always arise from karma? Past, you know, thoughts that just spring up into the mind unbidden. That's that's past karma. What you do about these things, that's present karma. So if you know, for anger comes up and you say, "Hey, yeah, let's go," okay, now it becomes your present karma. But if you say, "No, I don't want to go there," okay, then you're creating skillful karma in the present moment. Our problem is basically that we tend to deal unskillfully with unskillful thoughts. Either anger comes up and we go with it full 100%, or we hate it and we try to deny it. That doesn't do anything. That doesn't do anything. You have to step back a bit and say, okay, what's what's going to work here? And then you try various approaches and see what works. But it's it's important when you're looking at your mind to realize that some of the things in your mind are from past karma and some of the things are from present karma. Present karma is the intention. So you want to you can't do much about past karma at all, but you can be clear about what your present intention is, and you can make a difference there. Yes. Clothing for you know, protection. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, communicate that to a teenager? Child. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you know, her, her whole purpose was addressing this to, to show off, yes. Show off, or to her ears. Sometimes that's where you have to practice equanimity. <laughs> <laughs> These values are values that have to come from within. You know, if the parents embody the values, there'll be a period, of course, when the children try to rebel against the values. But if they've grown up with them, their rebellion doesn't last long. So make sure that you embody these values in your life. And after a while, those are the ones that they'll feel comfortable with. Now, I've had a number of issues in, in, in the monastery. We tend to get a lot of Thai families who bring their children to see me. They, they say, these children, they don't listen to Thai people. They only listen to Americans. So you talk to them. <laughs> And so what I found the best approach is to first send the child off and talk to the parents, teach them equanimity, <laughs> and then send the parents off and then talk to the child. But not to talk to the child in front of the parents. That's the worst thing you can do. But often it's just that you know, there's, there's a lack of understanding, communication, and of course there's the old issue of the children wanting to establish their boundaries. So there'll be a short period when they're doing that. But after a while, that only lasts so long. So it's important, you know, the, the, 
the qualities that you've been embodying in your clothing, food, shelter. That's ultimately what they'll be able they'll feel most comfortable with over the long term. But if she asks for a hundred dollars to buy a pair of shoes, it's no. <laughs> yes. As a meditative practice, you might want to try when you're meditating before you before these instances come up. Notice that wherever there's a pattern of tension in the body, think of breathing through it to relieve the tension wherever it is in your body. Think of the breath energy going in and out of the body right there to relax that tension, and then that make that more and more your knee-jerk reaction. So when anger comes up, you breathe through it first, and then you act, and that gives you a little bit of space. Mm-hmm. Right. Getting back to the first question about support, uh, your five techniques for doing the last spoken talks. Do you have us, are any more effective than others in terms of not conditioning the rebirth of the same thought again? It really varies from thought to thought. The order in the, in the sutta, the, the Buddha recommends that you do them in that order. That the most effective one is to replace an unskillful thought with a skillful thought. If that doesn't work, then you go to the next and the next and the next. And you save the sledgehammer for last. But ultimately, it has to come to, there has to be a moment of insight when you realize that you really don't want to go with that thought. And you don't have to. And that, that insight can come at anyone, through any one of those techniques. So, so it is almost you're, you're setting up the conditions to achieve the insight. Mm-hmm. That's what you're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And because the anger is going to be there, mm-hmm. and unless you fully embrace it, understand it, it will tend to come back. Mm-hmm. That, that, in, that, in that situation. Yeah. I wouldn't use the word embrace. Mm-hmm. And you allow it. You allow it a space to be, so you can see it, and you step back. It's like the car coming up, revving its engines. Let's go. And it's a red Corvette, and it's going to go roaring down the road. And the driver's wearing black leather. <laughs> and if you can see that, well, that's, I don't want to go there. So, so it's not the it's not um, engaging with it, just becoming, it's more awareness of it. Right. And, and as I said, most of us think that our choice is between indulgence and repression, and it's not. I mean, repression means you actually deny that it's there, and then it's going to come up. It's like trying to hold a ball, a ball underwater. It's going to come up as soon as you let go of it. But actually seeing, okay, I, I know this anger. I've seen this before. I know it, what it is. I just don't want to go there. Once you can establish that space between yourself and the anger, then you can start thinking of ways of dealing with it. Any practice or anything? Meditation, you mean? Yes. There was a there's a technique by John Lee for working with the breath, which deals with the breath energy in the whole body. And up to that point, I'd been doing a, a visualization practice, which was giving me headaches. And this got me back down in my body, and I was able to work with the tension in the body and sort of be comfortable in the body while I meditated. That I found that most helpful.
Yes. Uh, in a few spiritual magazines, I see a lot of uh, advertisements for Qigong and Reiki healers and the whole idea of the energy flow and all that. Uh, could you address your ideas on that? Is that uh, very helpful? In some instances, I have found it helpful, yeah. But what's especially good is you, you can learn to work with your own energy flow yourself. You learn to sort of explore your body. Where do, where do the knots tend to be? A lot of times they tend to be in the back of the neck. And sometimes some people find working there directly helps release a lot of tension in the body. Other people find it too hard to work there because there's so much tension. So you work at other points. But if, if you find that you know, some energy work from outside and combine that with your own ability to work with the energy inside, that can be very effective. One more question back here. Yeah. looking at it and saying, okay, is there something I can do about this? And if there is something, you go ahead and you do it. It doesn't mean reading it with indifference, but just sort of filtering out, okay, what can I, what, what can I change and what can I not change? Well, try something. Because, <laughs> again, it's, it's not the... We tend to have either total immersion or total withdrawal as our two alternatives. And there has to be a middle ground. And it's finding that middle ground. That's where, that's where the skill comes in.